Hi, welcome to the Holy Fuck Podcast. I'm your host, Alexandra Roxo, author of Fuck Like a Goddess, creator of Radical Awakenings, transformational coach, and student of life. I'm here to stand with you asking questions about what is sacred and what is profane and the space between. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. I am so happy to have one of my dear friends, Ruby Warrington, on today's podcast. You probably know her, if not through me, through her incredible work. You've probably heard me talk about her as well. She has written many books. She has supported many people. She has uh, put ideas into the world that are really revolutionary. And her notebook is totally on par with that. More visionary thinking from Ruby Warrington. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, everybody. I'm here celebrating with my dear friend Ruby Warrington on her book publishing day, which is just like her book is born today. <laughs> what an honor. Yes. I was, I was going to say she's out in the world. I don't know if my book is a she. Maybe my book's non-binary. Um, but yeah, the book is out today. Yeah, yeah. It's an Aries baby. Yep. <laughs> Which if you don't know Ruby, okay, just FYI, if you don't know Ruby, where have you been? No, most of you probably know Ruby Warrington because she's one of my dear friends. We started Moon Club together for any OG Moon Club people. And I was talking to Eli last night and he was like, is this the first time you've had Ruby on? And I was like, no. And then I was like, wait. We had we have had another conversation. I've been on your podcast. I'm sure you've come on the Sober Curious podcast. I feel like you came on the Now Age podcast when yeah, I was doing that. We've definitely. What did we talk about on the other one? Do you remember on the other one for my podcast? I can't remember. It might have been Sober Curious because that's been the main right. thing I've been speaking about for the right. past few years, be. you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you all, if you haven't listened to that that episode, go find it. Ruby Warrington. <laughs> There's also what we several <laughs> great podcasts from the two of us talking about our collaborationship, as we used to call it, um, on mm-hmm. Ruby's podcast, The Now Age, and Sober Curious. But today, we're not here to talk about Sober Curious or Material Girl, Mystical World, or The Numinous, though all of that may pop in at some moment. But we are here to talk about her book, Women Without Kids, which I have here next to me, The Revolutionary Rise of an Unsung Sisterhood. Ooh! OMG. <laughs> that really has a ring to it. It's very, um, yeah, yeah, it's very iconic language. It's very like, boom. Yes. Well, this was, <laughs> we share, we share a publishing, yes. an editor at our publisher. Yeah. Um, and there were a couple of options for the subhead, but she specifically wanted to go with this one. She wanted it to feel like a rallying cry. Like, let's I love. speak to these women who were not being represented um, and bring people together. And I actually, I was like, but this isn't necessarily a rallying cry. This book is not about, it's not necessarily a celebration of non of child freedom or ch- being childless. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more a sort of a very considered, deeply researched state of the, I was going to say state of the nation, but honestly state of the race. Like the, the, the birth rate, globally has been declining steeply for around 100 years, Mm -hmm. especially steeply since the 1970s. And as somebody who never wanted to be a mum, that was always just part of my story. And it was quite something that was known about me, but that was very personal. Um, 
I just knew that it wasn't in my path. It was very intuitive Mm -hmm. and I was always okay with it. Lots of other people weren't necessarily okay with it and we might get into that. But um, I had always felt like I was the only one, Uh the only weirdo who didn't want to be a mom. And Mm -hmm. what I realized when I considered writing on this topic was that that sharp decline in the birth rate, which, you know, some scaremongering demographers and economists especially are saying will lead us to population collapse if this continues, um, is reflective of millions and millions and millions of individual women's decisions, intimately personal, often highly conflicted, sometimes very painful decisions or even non-decisions about not having kids. And I just thought, we're not talking about this. This conversation is not being had with the depth and the nuance and the respect that it deserves. I mean, this is really at the heart of our humanity, you know, and it's absolutely reshaping our societies. And still we just, still we sort of dismiss women without kids as the outliers and the anomalies and the ones who haven't quite got it or, oh, how sad they weren't able to sort of fulfill their maternal desires or duties in a way you know and um mm-hmm. so yeah there's there's so much in it it goes to such incredibly deep places that I wasn't necessarily anticipating even when I sat down to write it but um yeah I honestly believe this is one of the most important conversations for us to be having mm. right now the conversation meaning what are all the reasons that mm-hmm. some of some of them are some of them are very empowered and very positive mm-hmm. and some of them are very painful Mm -hmm. Um, and indicative of honestly like conditions here Mm. on planet earth that are just not conducive to child rearing and family life. Yeah. Okay. So one question that immediately popped into my mind as you were speaking was, is this a conversation that is mainly for a certain strata of, uh, social class, uh, education, and even religion or or nationality, how do how do you approach in the book? Because immediately I'm thinking about all of the places where women can't choose, where the men are choosing, um, all of the different religious or kind of cultural uh, norms in places where it's almost it, it's obligatory times ten, right? You could even look at like Catholicism mm. and. The women who were trying to find ways to uh, use secret tools of contraception so they didn't keep having to pop out babies. And I'm just curious, in the book, do you talk about this? Like, is this an evolutionary place that is a place of some sort of education and privilege? Education and privilege that are human right that should not be. I mean, it is, yes, basically the more access women have to education, to the means to support themselves financially, to physical bodily autonomy, to sovereignty over how they are living their lives, the fewer children women have, the more dominant of a patriarchy ultimately that is in place in any society, the more children women will have because they have less choice. So yes, choosing not to have a child, choosing to have one or few children, um, questioning whether you want to have children is a privilege and it absolutely should not be. (laughs) It is a privilege that has been won by 
decades, centuries of feminist fight, you know, and resistance and demands. Um, What's interesting is the birth rate, even in countries where the population is still increasing, the birth, the individual birth rate is declining. People are women, individual women are having fewer children. Uh-huh. So this is a global trend in okay, all so different societies and all different Americans cultures. Or Westerners. Right. But in Western culture, um, there have been more gains for women and for women's rights, you know, um, and for queer rights as well. You know, people mm-hmm. who are not heterosexual are recognized as being entitled to form families in the ways that they want to, you know, and so, and to live their lives as they want to, which is, and that's all part of this conversation too, in a way, you know, um, the pronatalist program, which is a cornerstone of patriarchy dictates that the only valid kind of a family or person even is a person who is in a heterosexual relationship and who produces children. And anybody who's existed outside of that paradigm has been, well, I mean, you know, there are, there is an incredible book, which I highly recommend reading. I think your, your podcast listeners might love it. It's called Caliban and the Witch. Mm-hmm. And Sylvia Federici, who's a feminist scholar, she lays out in a very academic, incredibly well-researched and referenced tome, how the witch trials, you know, that swept Europe, the Americas and many parts of the world throughout the sort of 15th, 16th centuries were actually part of getting people with the procreative program that was being put in place as we transitioned to capitalism. So obviously that's a huge subject. I highly recommend reading Caliban and the Witch to kind of get into all of that and to understand how it all kind of comes together. I touch on it in the book, but um, yeah, I suppose it's interesting, like this, there's a lot of my personal story before we got and started recording you touched on the fact that you were really looking forward to reading yeah the storytelling parts and I did want to tell this from a place of of story and of memoir because I wanted people to be able to connect with it on a really heart centered place I didn't want it to just be dry academic or journalistic research yeah which I have a tendency to because that's the kind of brain I have I wanted to include my story and so I also acknowledge that people who are heterosexual, cisgender, you know, would identify as coming from a sort of Western culture, will see themselves reflected most clearly in the pages. Mm -hmm. But the deeper themes that I dig into are relevant to anybody Mm -hmm. who identifies as a woman without kids Mm -hmm. and anybody who feels or has experienced um, the, the feeling, the sensation of slipping back into a state of kind of oppression in their mothering because ultimately you know the role of mother being the ultimate feminine gender role has meant has has historically been oppressed you know yeah 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 there's so much in there and I don't know why that was the first thing that popped into my Mm. mind because I think I was thinking like wow we're so lucky that's what I was thinking I was thinking wow we're so lucky that we get to choose And that we We get to have, you know, well, to the extent that we have reproductive uh, options and that kind of thing, which is scary, um, Mm -hmm. where we may be going even here in the United States. But the fact that we have more of these choices is, yeah, it's it's hard to feel that, uh, that in so many cultures, especially under patriarchal religion, 
there isn't the space for women to even consider. It's like a total obligation. Whereas like for me or you, I, to be able to put our career first and live our dreams, it's so incredible. And I can see why someone needs to steward this conversation forward <laughs> so that it right. moves into other domains and other realms of experience. And so I, I think that that's why your work is always so visionary because it, it is always tackling something that's really big. Like it's a mm -hmm. big thing to consider mm -hmm. and you aren't just considering it from this like small, you know, white feminist kind of perspective. You're, you're, you're like going, no, 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 this is a whole a thing on the whole planet right now that no one is considering that right. so many women. And I don't even know, do you know the statistics around kind of this kind of sense of obligatory motherhood or I just made those words up. I think, did I make those up? Is that a thing? <laughs> no, obligatory motherhood. I mean, I think up until like the 1960s, motherhood was pretty much obligatory. There have always, there have always been outliers. There have always historically been women without kids. Um, for what, for all sorts of different reasons, but the numbers of women without kids has been increasing since again, in the West, we had things, access to things like, you know, reliable, effective, easy to access birth control, safe, mm -hmm. legal abortions, this yeah. sort of thing. And equally, opportunities to get educated, to support ourselves financially yeah. and to yeah. kind of have autonomy in our overall sort of material lives. Right. And I would also just like to point out, I did a IG live with a, a child-free kind of coach in this space the other day. And she was saying that when she started her platform, one of the first sort of emails she got was from a man who lives in the Middle East and he was sort of expressing, I don't know what to do. I'm being married to this person. I'm expected to be a father and for that to be my life. And I want out. I don't want that to be my life. So it's not mm. just women that this impacts, you mm. know, everybody's implicated mm. in this procreative program. It's just that traditionally, and again, we've made so many, we have made so many advances here, but I think that the row being turned back last year was just a symbol of how precarious some of that progress has been. Yeah. Um, but traditionally, men have had more freedom um, to, uh, more autonomy. I don't know if I want to use the word freedom. I want to, I'll use the word autonomy yeah. to at least um, have some, have some more agency yeah. over the kind of lives they want to live. Yeah. Yeah. And so a little bit back to you, and I imagine the decision to write about where your private journey intersects this collective conversation or, I don't know if problem is the right word, but this collective, let's say, um, issue, how, like, that, that's, that seems scary. <laughs> <laughs> From where I'm sitting, I'm like, wow, that's it's so vulnerable to to share how your private journey actually you feel like is indicative of this greater um, question or issue on the planet. Like what what brought you to the like, how did you know, OK, I need to actually write a book about this? I mean, like I touched on, I didn't really I don't think I realized how deep the roots of this 
went until I started writing, until I started the excavation of my own story, you know? Um, particularly looking into, you know, the the lineage of mothers in my family and the sorts of experiences that they had and just then reflecting on how that was a result of a lot of the systems that have ruled our lives and historically. And so, I mean, I came to this from a really personal place, as I have done with all of my projects. In fact, I there was a psychologist I interviewed for my research. Um, she had a book out called Emotional Inheritance, which is all about, I mean, I think you'd find it fascinating. Um, it's all about the patterns that we inherit sort of subconsciously from our families of origin and how they play out in us until they find a resolution. It's a little similar to Maureen Solonet's work with family constellations, but a little less mystical. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, um, in the beginning, in the introduction of her book, she sort of, she says, you know, there's a saying, all research begins as me-search, mm. all deep, you know, a lot of a lot of kind of like deep, particularly if you're talking about sort of psycho-emotional, spiritual sort of subject matter, Research often begins as me search. Like there's a question in me, there's a question in myself that I need to find the answer to. And so that was kind of, yeah, like, I mean, so like I said, I'd always, I'd always just had this intuitive knowing that I wouldn't be a mother. It wasn't necessarily that I was rejecting motherhood. There were just so many other things that felt like a yes in my body. And that just, it wasn't even that it felt like a no, it just didn't, it just wasn't present for me, the desire on any level. Um, which, like I said, given what we're led to believe about our purpose, particularly as women, um, had always, I I always felt like there was maybe something missing or just that I was at least very different, but I was kind of quite comfortable with with that because it just felt like me. It felt right, you know? So although I had this, I felt like an outsider in many ways, it just felt like this was my path and it was different and okay. Um, lots of people ask me the question in my 30s throughout my 30s but why don't you want to have kids but why and I I learned as well in the writing of this book that they would even ask one of my best friends in the UK but why doesn't Ruby want kids it just seemed like people were fascinated and I never really had more of an answer than I I just don't I just don't but actually when I entered my kind of early to mid 40s and began to look ahead to menopause and to contemplate the end of my reproductive years, like really seriously, um, I realized that there was zero regret. I didn't feel like I'd missed out on anything. There was no big box that I had left unchecked in my life. Um, and I guess my curiosity was peaked at that point. But but why? Because it is so, it has traditionally been such an other path. And it was so, it did mark me out as so very different. Mm-hmm. Honestly, from the vast majority of friends, family, and <laughs> people in my community, right? Um, and I also realized that around that age, I began to look around and notice that actually I had quite a few friends who also had not had kids. And I began to wonder, had they been there all along? Had we just never mm-hmm. found each other? I wonder what their reasons are. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they felt as different and as strange as I have, you know? And then I zoomed out even further and looked at the statistics, which show, I mean, at at this, you know, currently at any time in the United States, like 50% of women do not have children. And this is, of course, you know, ranging in ages from like 17 up to like 65. Um, But also, actually, I think the most recent figures, maybe even just from last year, 
showed that more than 50% of women aged 30 and above don't have children. And that's the first time it had tipped in that direction since records began in the 1920s. So people are certainly leaving it later, which often means having fewer children and therefore often none at all or increasingly often none at all so I sort of looked at these bigger statistics and just thought well wow that's very interesting here am I thinking I've just been walking this total loner maverick nobody gets it path and there are all these other women who are not having children and undoubtedly their reasons are different to mine or maybe they're not and I was just very curious from that point of like why it became less about like why did I not want to have kids and why have we stopped having kids and that's when I realized that my story was one of millions and millions and millions of stories that are creating this societal shift that we touched on in the beginning of the conversation Um, and that by telling my story and really feeling into the depths of it I would potentially be able to excavate some of the influences that are impacting other people's reproductive outcomes also but yes it feels incredibly vulnerable not least because there is a very vocal often quite aggressive faction of society that's very angry with the fact that women are not reproducing on demand (laughs) Um, and what this might mean especially for the economy as we move forward through this century and so I'm yeah stealing myself for some kind of a backlash Uh, who knows who knows this is day one books out today I don't know what kind of responses it will get um but yeah I'm I'm slightly nervous yeah about being held up as a look at this evil witch telling everyone to stop having kids which by the way is not what I'm doing at all like I said this is not a celebration necessarily of of child freedom and it's not encouraging trying to encourage anybody not to have children if anything the big message that I came out of this process with was like we need to really really respect the decision to have children and to really support people in that decision because so many women without kids are childless by circumstance or childless not by choice would like to have would like to have children if circumstances were different and that those circumstances can be different for everyone too but um yeah that was one of the things that I really got from the process yeah well two things popped up for me it's just and this may have been something that we talked about in a conversation once but just creating like solidarity amongst that 50 percent because there is such a solidarity around around being a mom right like there's Mm -hmm. tons of instagram accounts about being a mom Mm -hmm. like there's probably like thousands and thousands about being a mom but Mm -hmm. are there the same kind of level of community and solidarity and support for the other the other percentage of women who are not moms either like you said because they can't be which is a certain type of support or because they're choosing not to be which is a different type of community and support though i'm sure they could intersect beautifully Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. in your research have you found um that those places those communities those support systems are starting to pop up or do you think that your book is going to start to create movement where women find each other just like moms (laughs) seek each other out but women who have chosen something else can find each other 
Yes, that's exactly a big part of what I hope this book will do is to unite the unsung sisterhood. Because as I realized in my life, wait, we've all been here all along. We just didn't know we had this thing in common. And it's interesting because what we have in common is the absence of something, right? Um, There is huge solidarity among mums. And it's like, as soon as you have a child, you're sort of just automatically part of this group. You know, you have this thing, literal thing. Yeah. (laughs) sorry to call people's babies things, but this literal being in common with these other people. Now, I've also spoken to lots of mums who find that their identity can sometimes get lost in the mix, sometimes kind of um, get erased when they become a mum. And it's like, now I'm just a mum and people see me as a mum first and foremost. And wait, I still want to be me with my individual interests and desires and needs and and challenges. Um, But yeah, there's nothing, there's no similar kind of like club for women without kids. What I have discovered, there's one amazing organization called Gateway Women um, Mm -hmm. based out of the UK. And they speak specifically to people who are childless by, childless not by choice, Mm -hmm. who are grieving, not being able to have children. Jodie Day, who runs it, is an amazing woman. Um, There's an organization here based on the West Coast called the New Legacy Institute, which is more focused on um, dismantling pronatalism. So that word pronatalism comes up in the book. Um, It essentially describes an ideology that says that valid um, parents and married people, but parents specifically, are more valid than non-parents. And when you know that this exists, it's one of those things you can't help but sort of see it everywhere and you can kind of feel it in your bones as well, you know? I felt Um, that so much. I mean, I feel like always like the freaky, slutty, mystical weirdo because I have never been married and don't have kids. Like I just feel like in any of my family structure, I am seen as not valid. Right. You know, and it would be right. e- it would be easy in a way, but it would be easy to just be like, oh, great. Now I'm validated if I get married. It's funny because my parents even keep calling my partner, my husband, and it's so annoying. Wow. And like uh. my aunt in Brazil texted me, oh, I'm so glad you and your husband got to see your cousin. I'm like, oh, my God. But they're so Catholic and they're so Talk Brazilian. Freudian. Yes, right. Exactly. But there's, I will never be, I would never be normative to them, which also I'm okay with, right? (laughs) Right. This is the thing. I've always been okay with being the weirdo. And what I, and and I do, it's kind of, I sort of wonder if one of the reasons there aren't really, there's also, I want to point out another, um, highlight another organization in, in Berlin. She has been based in Berlin, but she's hitting the road and I don't know where she's going to land, but it's called We Are Child Free. And this is a photographer named Zoe Noble who's kind of created a platform where she photographs and shares the stories of people who are child free by choice. Mm -hmm. Um, So these communities do sort of exist. Right. But I sort of, I sometimes feel like women without kids, especially if you have sort of chosen that alternative path, and are therefore more comfortable with it, don't necessarily need the kind of group. I've never felt like the need for a community, but then I don't. I don't really feel the need for community, which, oh, well, that's interesting Uh because my family never really felt like a community. Mm -hmm. I never grew up with that, so I've never really felt the need for that. That's very specific to me. Mine's the opposite. I didn't grow up with it. Part of my story. (laughs) 
and I want it always. Right, exactly, which is what's so interesting. And I think that that is just, it, it shows as well how individualistic our responses to our family upbringing yeah. can be when, when we then apply what we learned in our upbringing, our imprinting of our upbringing into our feelings and desires for family going forward, which is like almost a whole other subject. Right. But yeah, I do, I hope that, I really hope that this book can help to bridge the kind of the divide between the can't have kids and the won't have kids. Right. Because a lot of the time, I think we are experiencing the same kind of feelings of otherness, potential feelings of shame. I'm a failure. I wasn't able to do this thing. I didn't want to do this thing. I'm the kind of outcast. I'm the weird aunt who kind of sits on the sidelines. I'm the one that like just always feels slightly like that kind of weird witchy outsider. And some people are more comfortable with that than others. Um, But then there's also things like, you know, I recently moved to Miami, which is a much more family centric city than New York where I was based before for multiple reasons, cultural reasons, economic reasons, like environmental factors, et cetera, et cetera. But I have a friend here who is someone I knew from New York. Um, and I'll, I'll be, I'll be, I'll shield some of the details of her story, but, um, she had thought she was going to be a mom and then it just hasn't worked out. And so she's here sort of, you know, 40 single non-mom, and all of her friends have kids and are starting their families. And she's just sort of, who do, where do, what do I do? Where do I go? Like, where is the, who do I hang out with, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do think that there is a need for women without kids to have opportunities to just to hang out, right? <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> to hang out, to go on vacation with, to like do all those things that, families do together right you know because we don't necessarily have those spaces and we're not always and and yes it's wonderful to be included and welcomed into our friends families and family vacations and family hangouts but there's only so much of feeling <laughs> like the odd one out isn't. there's only so much of feeling like the odd <laughs> one out that you can kind of take sometimes totally. you know uh, especially if it's been a painful journey for you and you yeah. and you haven't been able to have that thing to sort of have it rubbed in your face not that it's ever intended that way necessarily I think can be hard for people yeah it is and it's interesting I've had that experience so many times for me the the wound or the rub was more around being single because I wanted so desperately to be in a partnership and there was like a good chunk like a six seven years where I felt like everywhere I was invited to it was like oh I can go hang with this married couple and their kids or whatever but it it always felt yucky, you know? And I think Mm. that there's something, maybe it's like, I won't say always, I'll take that back. There were times where it was fulfilling. There were times where it made me more sad because it made me feel Mm. like, wow, what's wrong with me that I don't have this thing at this age? Most Mm -hmm. people, like am I a late bloomer? How come I haven't found a partner by by this age? I must be damaged or something. Okay, turns out I'm not, everything's okay. If you're out there thinking that thought right now, ladies. but and also, I just want to say, even if you hadn't have found a partner, like you wouldn't, everything would be okay. Do you know fine. what I mean? But that's so that's it's interesting that once we are in the outsider position, yeah. we sort of immediately do that compare and despair thing where we're like, well, there's obviously something wrong with me because I didn't, I wasn't able to like check, 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 check all right. of these specific boxes that validate a human's yeah. existence. Yeah. yeah. 
And I think, you know, the the conversation around marriage and partnership is a sim it's similar but very, very, very different. Yes. But it's another one of it is these very similar, though. cultural mm-hmm. norms that either validates or doesn't validate and that maybe is gonna be shifting. I don't another conversation. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we can look at the statistics around marriage at another time. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um well, I think there's something that I notice that's maybe sort of like animalistic in a way how women, uh, the women that I ha- have hang out with in, in like the last bit of time, it can be that it's like moms gravitate towards each other, single women gravitate towards each other. And what I have felt is it's so beautiful to be like, yes, there's this kind of primal um need to commune with others like us, right? Like if Mm -hmm. it's cultural Mm -hmm. or religious or like something like that. For me, I felt like at times it can feel hard to be like, okay, well now I can't hang with the single gals anymore because I have got a partner and I don't really resonate with they're talking about, but I can't hang with the moms (laughs) and I'm not a wife, you know? And it's like, it kind of breaks down these structures (laughs) around identity and then mm. for me, it, it it brings me back to I want to hang out with the creatives and the visionaries, and that's where I feel at home. And it has nothing to do with partnered, unpartnered, married, unmarried, mom, right. children, no children. Um, but I just wonder, is like in your research, have, have you seen that there's like a human need or anything around um, finding a sense of belonging within these oh, identity absolutely. structures? I mean, the need to belong is so integral to who we are as human beings, you know? We're tribal beings. We literally, historically and evolutionarily, have not been able to to survive as lone individuals. That is evolving as technology evolves and our worlds and systems evolve with it. I make the point in the book that actually, with one of these, holding up my phone, Mm -hmm. and enough apps... You need never interact with another human being and you can survive. That's, anyway, that's part of what's going on. Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> um, AI and all that yeah, stuff. We have, exactly. We have this, like, we do have a primal need to belong. And in a world where we are so categorized by our various different identifying, like, identity markers finding other people who have similar identity markers to us can bring a sense of belonging. But it's not the case necessarily that these are our people. I love the fact that you said you feel most at home, the creatives and the visionaries. And I can absolutely relate to that as well. I feel the most at home with people I connect with on a sort of like spiritual intellectual emotional level and it doesn't really and it doesn't really matter like what their identity mark their external identity markers are um but that's how we found each other and maybe it's part of to do with being an infj and an enfj Mm -hmm. (laughs) i don't know but um and maybe that's part maybe that's partly our upbringing i feel like i don't know my my parents were both sort of kind of unusual creative thinkers as well they were both quite unconventional I suppose so Mm -hmm. unconventional feels comfortable to me actually sorry I actually just unpacked that in speaking it out but um Yeah. yeah so I do think we need places to belong and I definitely think that we need family like there's a chapter on found family and how important actually when we don't have children for whatever reason 
um, our found family, like our friendship and kind of non-biological kinship groups take on added importance. And I think that that will be another conversation that really comes to the fore as people think about how we can sort of prioritize but valorize the importance of our friendship kinships as well as our biological kinship groups you know yeah that's already um starting to blossom in all sorts of different ways you know Hi, everybody. Quick interlude here because I want to tell you about my group Radical Awakenings. It's an online community space for wild women, for smart women, for women who love to engage in spiritual practice, who don't go to traditional temple or church, but want to create their own temple space where we can practice embodiment and ritual, where you can stand in front of the group and ask questions, feel your feelings, express your rage, your grief, we can laugh together, we can write together, we can speak and pray in the way that we know in our bones how to do together. So I've been leading spaces like this for a very long time. My first women's circle I led back in 2002. I am super devoted to creating safe and sacred spaces for women to come together, to play, to express, to embody, to feel, to grieve, to open, to inspire each other. Sacred sisterhood is super important to me and not in some let's fix each other sugar-coated dress all in white version of spirituality. Of course, you know me. That's not how I roll. The women that come to my programs, they're smart, they're change makers, they're visionaries, they're crossing thresholds and initiations, they're going through dark nights of the soul. They've got tattoos, they've got babies, they're birthing books, they're making radical changes in their lives. Of course, you don't have to have tattoos or babies or books in order to be with us, but all are included. We are a beautiful motley crew of women who have one sacred goal, to come together to honor these bodies, these hearts, to honor our spiritual practice day to day, not as something we just do on a yoga or meditation retreat, but something that is incorporated and integrated into our lives. We bring rituals into the homes, we make altars, we live by the stars and the moon, we live by the cycles, and we come together to reclaim something that we know to be true. So I would love to invite you to the next iteration of Radical Awakenings. We meet twice a month and you get the recordings if you can't attend live with all kinds of bonuses included in the program as well. So look in the show notes. There's a link to join, bring a friend. We would love to have you, to hold you, to be with you as we all continue to walk this wild and weird human life together. Well, I feel it's so important, and I know it's something we've talked about a lot. And for me, it's like partnered, unpartnered, kid, no kid. I'm only child. My parents, Mm -hmm. you know, are in their zones, but they're not around. They're not in my immediate community. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so the importance of still of creating that found family. I think that even for a single mom or something like that, you know, my mom, mm. I think would have really benefited from having more of a village yes. around when I was a kid. Um, yes. But it wasn't socially acceptable. I mean, that being said, I will say I have like a godmother auntie who doesn't have children of her own biological. And she came mm. into my life when I was like five and I'm still in touch with her. And she she helped pay for my college at NYU. 
And I still see her as a mother figure. Um, and I've, it's been something that I've come back to again and again, how special it was to have her around. But that was very unconventional even. Like for yeah. my mom to have like a friend kind of companion around who wasn't a lesbian relationship, it was just a friend. But I think that, yeah, the conversation around how we create that, those found families with or without children. Well, what I was going to say is since moving to Boulder from L.A., in New York mm. living, which feels much mm. more like gathering based off work, creativity. Since moving here, I've just noticed that it's been a lot harder to, as a person who's almost 40, to interweave myself in people's lives because what I notice, and if you're listening and you're a friend of mine in Boulder, I'm not talking about across the board, but um, because there is so much feeling of tightness and focus of this nuclear family unit. And it's a very, it's very white. It's very uh, privileged place. It's very expensive to live here. And I felt a feeling of sadness of like, wow, sometimes it takes two months to like make a hang time. And I started telling my partner, I think I said, I think it's because people are married and they have kids. And so that's their priority, not hanging out with us, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's okay, but it definitely doesn't feel like my way of doing life. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. and that's like very, um, that very kind of siloed. Well, actually, I think it's relatively new way. I don't think that okay. human families right. used You're to, right. I think that human families used to be much true. more sprawling and have many more different influences. And I right. think that women without kids always had an important role in kind of more extended family structures, like the auntie kind of figure that you Mm -hmm. um, just expressed right. about who I haven't heard you talk about, but I, I, I don't believe I don't know that about I you. That's know. so cool that you she had her. Mm -hmm. She paid for my yeah. sometimes. She was really awesome. Um, very, very cool. But yeah, I do think, I think that this is a relatively sort of post-industrialization kind right. of invention, this nuclear right. family setup that does sort of absorb all the love, care and attention, not least because there isn't that wider support structure in place. Right. And people have learned to become more and more self-sufficient either within the family unit or as lone individuals. Right. And it's almost seen as too needy or intrusive to ask or expect help from others. Whereas particularly in non-white cultures, possibly because there is less access to individual material resource, there is more still a sense of relying on friends right. and non-biological kin to kind of fill in the gaps and support the parents in their parenting in many ways, you know? Right. It's almost like the more affluent individuals become, the less need there is for those kind of extended support structures. Right. And that, the, that those extended support structures are replaced by paying for a childcare, right. paying for a therapist, paying for a coach, paying for after-school programs, et cetera, right. et cetera, et cetera. Right. So it's a development of affluence, right. and yet it has, I think it's contributing to the loneliness epidemic that we hear about. And I think it's certainly contributing to people having fewer children or perhaps none at all, yeah. because it becomes more and more precarious. Like yeah. if you're having to pay for your extended family network, then you need to make sure you've got enough resources personally to be able to do that. So it's kind of, it's this interesting um, 
I don't know, it's almost like yeah. a, not a double bind, like, yes, great that people can be more affluent and have more comfortable lives, but the cost of that has been right. um, more of a kind of more interdependent care networks. Yeah. I'll say one last thing about that before we move on, but when I first moved here, I met some of my partner's friends who have kids and who love him. They like their kids love Eli. And I was like, we would love to babysit, like just to come hang, like happy to come hang sometime or next time we hang out with you, bring, bring your kids, whatever. And it was just like such a weird, I felt like I had said something so weird. <laughs> like I just, I was like, did I see something that was like socially unacceptable? And I just realized mm. like, it's just not how people roll, you know, it's just not right. how people roll here. Like they're not going to bring their kids to dinner at our house. Like, and I, anyway, oh, I can leave this conversation, this part of it, but mm. I will say I have glorified other cultures for their ability to integrate mm. children into their lives without it becoming this kind of siloed off thing that we've just discussed, which I feel like I've experienced a lot in the United States. But mm -hmm. when I've gone to some other cultures, I've seen parents seated at a dinner table with kids talking and it doesn't have to be like a big drama of everything about the child and now my life has to stop and now my identity has to stop and now everything has to be about this other person, which I see a lot in the United States. Yeah. Anyway, that's and one a little thing bit more I will say, and this is what I this is what I kind of touch on. A lot of times in more patriarchal cultures, for example, still women are in this very specific caregiving role, right? So part of the advances of feminism, giving women more autonomy, more financial freedom, more education, etc., has actually helped to, in a way, break down some of those kind of more traditional family networks. Right. Because actually, as much as we can look at them, and you use the word, I think, glorify, but like we can look at them through a sentimental lens sometimes too. Right. Not everybody's necessarily treated equally or has autonomy within those kind of right. more traditional family networks either. Right. And so there have been absolute benefits to giving more people freedom to kind of choose the lives that they want to live and it, for it not to all be centered around family and for people not to have these very specific and necessary roles within the family structure. So it's been, and that's what I was trying to get to, it's been like there's positives to this development right. and also negatives. It's like a both and kind of situation. Yeah. But I think that the, um, the advent of technology, specifically technology that is designed to kind of promote individualism, um, make it easier for people to be less dependent on others, to rely more and more on our machines, on the AI that drives the machines is absolutely um, speeding up this kind of sense of separation and this sense of like, we don't need each other anymore, right. you know, right. which is pretty sad. Yeah. Another question that popped up for me when we were talking is in the space of people being child-free by choice, I just thought like on a spiritual level, feeling you when you were speaking and you were like, it never was a thing for me. It wasn't a thing. I immediately was like, oh, that's Ruby on a soul level. She just knew. And it was so rooted and anchored in her deep spiritual self and her soul, right? The eternal part of her that 
she could stay with that decision and and live by that. And I was just I was just thinking, I wonder if from this kind of more meta spiritual perspective, if part of our own evolution from the from the outside in, right? Like from I'll say the other side, the realm before death or before birth or after death. But I just imagine like did a bit is a big group of souls say, okay, we're going to incarnate and decide not to have kids and we're going to create this shift on the planet of consciousness, some sort of evolution, some sort of opportunity for the planet to heal. Like, have you thought about it at all on this kind of I don't know what the word would be except spiritual, but like on this kind of spiritual level, perhaps why all of these people feel so sovereign and clear in this choice that doesn't resonate with the antiquated ideas around humanity and family. Absolutely. Yes. You know, I've thought, (laughs) you know, I've gone there. (laughs) That's where my brain goes sometimes. Um, Yeah, there are a couple of ways I sort of look at this. There's a chapter called Origin Stories where I look at, where I talk about how when when you don't have a child for whatever reason, something is ending with you, like something in your lineage is coming to an end with you. And I sort of think about that from the perspective of like, well, yes, potentially, and I don't necessarily spell it out the way you did, but potentially there are people coming through who on a soul level, it's our mission to just kind of, we're just going to end, we're just going to close this cycle here. I certainly, I think there's a there's a conscious parenting movement that's kind of been unfolding over the past three, four decades with people really kind of entering into their parenting as a, as a way to, um, as a way to do their personal growth, like really kind of like doing their spiritual growth and evolution kind of in their parenting with their children, like very consciously. And I think that that's part of this shift And I think that likewise, there are so many people coming through who are looking backwards and doing that work with their parents Mm. and doing that work, even thinking about the influence of, you know, the patterns they've inherited from their, going back to their grandparents, further back to their ancestors. And that's something I can relate to on some level. Um, But yeah, I mean, I do kind of, you know, I muse, I don't go too deep into this, but if we think about over the centuries, how much of a say the powers that be have had in terms of people's reproductive capacity and procreative potential. I do sort of muse on the fact that if if non-procreative sex, for example, um, contraceptive, like use of contraceptives, any queer sex, any non-penetrative sex between a heterosexual man and a woman had never been outlawed (laughs) Mm. And that all humans had been free to engage with our sexuality in whatever ways felt good and right. Um, perhaps we would have just the right amount of people on the planet right now. Mm. <laughs> Do you know what I, I mean? That, when we're talking dude. about this, there are a couple of strands in terms of population and where we're going. On the one hand, you've got sort of, there are too many people. The earth can't support this many people. We've just got, too, we've, we've overdone it on the reproduction, like our planet and the systems of the planet just can't support us going forward. And on the other side, you've got the more capitalist stance, which is like, we're heading towards population collapse. The population is aging too rapidly. There's not enough new people coming into the economy to support the Mm. aging population. 
conversation. And I just think, well, what do we expect? People have been meddling with people's procreative lives for the sake of shaping society in the way that best serves the people at the top of the power structure for centuries. So what do we expect? You know, let's just let people, let's just empower people whatever ways we can to make whatever decisions feel right for them about their procreative potential. And perhaps we'll start to see things kind of even out again over centuries because right. these, you know, demographic population trends take years and decades to kind of unfold and reveal themselves. But yeah, yeah it's interesting on a, the, the spiritual piece. I do, I mean, I've looked at it from all angles right. in the book and because right. I, you know, having that kind of a spiritual perspective is part of my life and part of my own sort of practice and my own inner work and personal work. I have looked at it from that angle too. Yeah. yeah I think that acknowledging that each soul has its own, you could say destiny or um, blueprint, right? For, for something. It's like, why would they all be the same to procreate or to get married or whatever, you know, it makes sense that this, like anything else that is taboo and, and hard to claim, but also important, it makes sense that a soul would incarnate with the knowing that it wasn't going to have a, a child this life, that it wasn't a part of it, of the purpose. Mm -hmm. But to liberate people from the, you know, the obligation or the the, I don't know what else the word would be besides obligation. Well, there's a lot of societal pressure and, and yeah, that societal pressure. pressure can very easily be internalized. Yes, exactly. You know? And exactly. often when it's internalized, it becomes that shameful inner voice, which we exactly. discussed earlier that we've both experienced, which is there's something wrong with me. I didn't exactly. do this thing I'm supposed to do. But exactly. that comes from absorbing and internalizing the external conditioning of pronatalism, which again says the only way to be a valid member of society is to ideally be in a heterosexual relationship and have children. Right. One of the brilliant things about your work is that you're always bringing forward ideas that liberate people from some sort of a internal shackle of pressure or oppression. And this one is big. I think it's your biggest one so far, which we've talked about. Oh my God. So Ruby's it's last big. book, Super Sober Curious. <laughs> yeah. If you didn't read Sober Curious, it really helped liberate people from this idea that, again, they just had to be a part of drinking culture, um, except that that's just how humans do. And mm -hmm. before that, her book, Material Girl, Mystical World, uh, examined astrology and astrology and mysticism and spirituality from the perspective of a modern woman, not from needing to be a, you know, yogi in an ashram. And at the time that was like such seminal work, which has pushed the needle. Um, in a sense, now we can go, oh, well, of course we accept that, but it wasn't acceptable back mm -hmm. then. So mm -hmm. I'm curious, the same with Sober Curious. When you started the Sober mm -hmm. Curious movement and Ruby was doing all kinds of amazing events, it was not, it was still very taboo and strange to consider, oh, why would I stop drinking if I'm not an alcoholic? Why would I even right. question my drinking? Um, and again, now that is considered more normal. I go to places, almost everywhere I go, they offer a non-alcoholic cocktail. It's amazing. 
You're and lucky. It's not, ha- not happening in Miami. We need to bring the Sober Curious movement to Miami. Boulder, but, yeah. Boulder is pretty particular. I mean, LA yeah. too. Um, <laughs> but that's hilarious. You got O'Doul's <laughs> happening down there, I imagine. Occasionally. Occasionally. I'm lucky. <laughs> <laughs> A Shirley Temple. <laughs> oh, gosh. We got to love Miami. That's where I was born, you guys. This oh, no, my dad. I do. I love it. Special place. I love it. Um, but do you envision in your perfect vision of where everything goes with this book, do you envision something similar where this becomes a part of a household conversation in the same way that those two other subjects have become? Yes, I do. I hope so. And it feels very edgy. Yeah. Again, with Sober Curious, I was so nervous to start talking about that. I really thought I would be endangering, potentially endangering people's lives because the message had been, if you have a drinking problem, you must go to AA, you must be in recovery and you must never drink alcohol again. I was saying, what if there are more shades of gray? What if sometimes you just abuse alcohol a little bit and you don't really have a life-threatening disease, you know? And that felt really edgy to suggest it because I really thought, because the messaging was so strong that any kind of form of alcohol problem is the disease of alcoholism and it will kill you if you keep drinking. Um, that I would potentially be endangering people's lives. And similarly, it's so interesting with this book, I'm really feeling like, God, I'm not recommending that anybody doesn't have children. I'm not trying to promote not having kids. I'm just trying to say, let's really get real about what's influencing people's decisions in this areas and how fucked up so much of our thinking around family structures and like mothering and all of these subjects are. But part of me is like, <gasps> what if everybody does stop having kids and like I'm bringing about the end of the human race, (laughs) which is kind of, it's kind of ridiculous given that there are like 8 billion people on the planet. But that to me is an, is an indicator of how deeply the hooks of that pronatalist sort of pro growth thinking that is the fuel of capitalism. And that fuels the idea that the ultimate expression of being a human is to birth children and to kind of keep contributing to to the human race that it lives in me still you know in terms of expressing in my fear about this book being out but um yeah I just want to if it's okay with you I want to kind of like join the dots between my three different the three different books you mentioned because I think there might be people who listening who have kind of yeah been following for a while and known about our relationship for a while so material girl world was the beginning of my inner work it was the beginning of me really knowing myself right Mm -hmm. astrology is a tool that I have used to really excavate my numinous nature and to understand myself on a really deep level and it was through engaging in that work that I realized that drinking alcohol the way I had been drinking alcohol was blocking me from really accessing like my whole full true self and then it was removing alcohol that essentially forced me to sit with the more uncomfortable parts of my experience of myself and look at the root causes of my discomfort and my anxieties and my insecurities and my fears and my never really feeling like I fit in and with that this outsider-ish quality of not being a not wanting to be a mom and having shut in in some ways kind of like totally denied that as even being something I would want for myself and it was sitting with that that I got to the really deep um, reasons for me not being a mom, which I won't necessarily go into here. I've spoken about on other podcasts. It's all in the book. But mm. for me, these three books are kind of different expressions of my own journey of like just 
really truly knowing myself yeah. and I think what you know something that we've talked about a lot and have brought forward in the work we've done together is just the power of storytelling for uniting people in our individual journeys to better know each other I've had countless people who've read this book Women Without Kids early readers just reflect back to me what I always hear when I share my stories your story is so different from mine and yet I saw so much of myself in it Mm. And I just fucking love that sentiment. And I think that is the medicine of stories. Yeah. We're so different and yet we're so the same, right. you know? Yeah. And I just, I'm really grateful yeah. to be in that position again, you know, helping people see themselves and know themselves better by being being the fucking Aries who stands up and goes, I'll go first. Right. I'll go. <laughs> That's visionary. You know? Stepping out on the edge. Yeah. The most amazing thing about that, which we may have talked about before if you guys have heard it, but it's like the person that steps out on the edge is like is calling. Like that's why it's called an edgy or edge. It's because no one there aren't people hanging out there. It's a fringe place. It's an uncharted territory. It's not safe yet. And someone steps out there and then they call people there. And that's where we expand in a way. Mm -hmm. And we do that in our own personal work on retreats. And people that work with me, we are always going to the edge of our experience and seeing what's there and expanding ourselves. And so we have talked about this too before, that that can feel not only scary, but lonely at times, because it means that you're taking a step before the masses and you're the mm -hmm. creating the invitation. And it also means that sometimes you don't get praised for it in the same way. However, we're breaking that down now. You <laughs> will get praised for it. So big. And I you love, have. I love, I love what you just said. The vision, the visual you created of this edgy place where someone goes there and we say, hey, you know, it's actually okay here. It's okay to be here. And then more people join and we expand together. It's almost like we create new ground together and then we create more safety ultimately, yeah. you know? Yeah, exactly. The more of us can congregate or kind of meet each other at these edgy places, the safer they become and the safer we feel. Yeah. And the more solid ground we create together, yeah. you know? So... Yeah. Yeah. I really love, I'm going to hold on to that <laughs> visual like as I'm stepping onto my... various stages over the yeah. next few weeks, feeling all the fear and oh, doing it anyway. <laughs> I, I see the image in my mind of like someone stepping close to the cliff's edge and then realizing that there's actually more land there and it's not a drop off. Yes. And yes. I, that image started exactly. for me back when I was in a, with a therapist in LA, like a short-lived therapist when I used to do sliding scale therapy anywhere and with whoever <laughs> back in the Been days there. when I didn't have the money. <laughs> but this woman said something to me, which I wouldn't really say to a client probably ever. And it's really stuck. So just for, if you're a coach or a therapist, just know you can say something to someone and it will stick for 10 plus years. <laughs> she said to me, it's lonely at the top. And I wasn't at the top, like of some, you know, I'm not some tech CEO or something like that, but she, I think she just meant like to be someone who is stepping out on that edge can feel lonely, right? Like, mm -hmm. however, 
there are others. There are other outliers. And it can feel scary to be the one who steps out to the edge. And it can feel like, mm. wow, it's like kind of lonely out here. But then you find your people and like we're each other's people. I might not be standing on that same little cliffside as you, but I'm like right around the corner waiting, <laughs> like yeah. walking over. Um, and, and I think that we need people like who are willing to take those risks in society, be it artistic or creative or spiritual or intellectual, sociological, whatever. We need those risk takers and not just mm -hmm. for the sake of commerce or big business because people always be right. doing that. But yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. though, for the sake of like just normalizing our weirdo, our inner weirdos, yeah. you know, like we're all, we've all got weird parts that yeah. they're kind of like parts that don't fit in or the parts that we deny and the parts that we cut off. And we've probably spoken about this so many times, but like, yeah, it becomes lonely when we cut off all those weird parts as well. Right. And I think right. one thing I love about having walked this kind of edgy path in my career is just, I feel more and more normal <laughs> right? in a way, you know, yeah. the more fellow weirdos I find right. in each iteration of my kind of story, you know? Yes. And I think the interesting thing is like traditionally the weirdos maybe fell under even a cliche of weirdo. And I think nowadays the way we're using that is like people who think outside the box and think differently and maybe yeah. have ideas that are really not acceptable to a lot of people. And that can make one feel weird, even if it's a spiritual yeah. idea that you have or like in this case, something about culture um, to to be weird on the surface is one thing, right? Like that's like the obvious thing that people consider. But to be someone who holds a lot of truths inside that vary from the dominant narrative, mm -hmm. that I think is a whole nother level of feeling weird because, mm. you know, you're not, you don't have a mohawk or a, you know, face tattoo, <laughs> but... I look so normal. But inside, you're <laughs> holding all of this. Yeah. We look so cute and normal, you guys. Yeah. And of course, <laughs> what we're talking about is relative, but and it's talking about, the. I think the relative nature is with the sort of dominant um, narrative that we've been a part of that we grew up in. And that's what we're mm -hmm. talking about in relation to. Mm. Um, well, I could keep going and going because, like, we could just keep talking and talking. But <laughs> I do want to move towards closing here and just um, what is uh, let us hold you in. What is your greatest hope for this project in the world? Let's all put some prayers and um, good vibes and listen to Ruby, and we can hold that desire with her. I mean, truly, I kind of I want this book to find everybody who needs it, which it sounds so basic, but my big desire for this book is that it becomes a real conversation starter. Yeah. You know, I'm saying to people, read this book with your non-mum friends, or maybe they're not your non-mum friends yet. Maybe it's just the other non-mums who are in your life who you're kind of, you've noticed, oh, another one. Um, read it with your mum friends. You know, I think that could be incredibly bonding. So often I think in friendships, when one of you has children and the other one doesn't, there's this sense of like, oh, that's the end of the friendship or like we're now going to walk separate paths. And that can be very hard for people. People can feel very left and abandoned in those situations. And so read with your mum friends to better understand each other's 
situations and feelings about motherhood and non-motherhood and read it with your partner. Mm -hmm. If you're considering having a child, if maybe one of you does, one of you doesn't, like let it start some conversations that really Mm -hmm. kind of help you determine your parental readiness or not and and where you might want to go with it. And honestly, like if you're feeling really brave, read it with your mum. Reading the manuscript or at least sharing the manuscript with my mum has been incredibly healing for our relationship. It's bonded us in ways that I didn't really think would be possible. I didn't even know were needed. And so, yeah, it's mm. maybe a brave one. But, um, but yeah, I want people to read this with others. Okay. You know, I just, um, it's such a, there's a lot a lot might come up whilst reading it. And there's only so much I as the narrator and an empathetic and loving author can hold you in. And I think, read this with your therapist. Mm. You know, there's the, a lot might come up reading it. And it's sort of yeah. not designed that way, but it couldn't not. I couldn't right. write this without really kind of getting into the weeds of it. And mm. a lot is likely going to come up. And I just know from my own experience um, that when we can hold that with others or be held in that with others, Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, we realize how much of a capacity we have to really move through some of the hard stuff, you know, and be with some of the hard stuff. So, so yeah, that's my wish for the book, um, is that people, it does help people find each other and that it actually starts some really progressive and healing conversations about Mm. motherhood and non-motherhood. Yeah. Great. Everybody take that in, go get the book, read it with a friend, pull some people together. And whether you are already have kids, whether you're considering having kids, whether you can't have kids, whether you won't have kids, it's still a book that can find you and can Mm -hmm. be something that I think can touch all women's hearts. I think Ruby's stories are so deep. And, and it also just asks us deeply into this conversation about what choices we make and why. And that applies mm-hmm. to everything in our lives, like to marriage, exactly. to homeownership, to everything, you know, that we yeah. take as uh, take at face value or, or feel pressured by. So I'm just congratulations. I'm so proud of you. You're amazing. Seriously. <laughs> Such a revolutionary Thanks. thinker. And I really want this book to it, also, if anybody listening has any hookups at, you know, big TV stations or press, send the <laughs> book to them. Okay. We want to get this baby please. out there. All right. Send if you're, listening and you're a yes. journalist, write an article about Ruby, please. Okay. <laughs> Thanks crew. Thanks community. Have a great day. So glad to have you with us here today, Ruby. Thank you, Alexandra. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. For more, 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 follow me on IG at Alexandra Roxo, and you can get on my mailing list where I send poems, practices, rituals, links to upcoming retreats and events, and all kinds of goodies. And if this podcast has touched your heart, please let us know. Please write us a review, give us a five-star rating, all of that. It means a lot to myself and everyone involved. Big, big love, my darling. Have a fabulous day and see you again very soon.